Hello everyone, I'm your host James Patton Rogers, this is Warfare and as you can hear I'm on the move again today. I am in Toronto, Canada and while I was here I sat down to record an episode with James Holland, an old friend of the podcast. It's 80 years since the Battle of Kursk, one of the greatest battles, largest battles in history. And of course, James is a wealth of knowledge on everything to do with the Second World War, including this pivotal battle. Enjoy. Hi, James. Welcome back to Warfare. How are you doing? Are you well? Yeah, I'm very good. Thanks, James. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're a very busy man. You've got a new book. You've got a fantastic new history festival. Tell us about all the things you've got going on. Yeah, it is quite busy at the moment, actually. Yeah, so I've got, um, I've been doing a, a book on the opening bit of the Italian campaign. So the sort of 1943 bit, which comes after Sicily. It's Salerno, the land is at Salerno, it's crossing the Volturno, it's all the eighth army stuff on the Adriatic, it's coming up against the Bernhard line, there's a San Pietro made famous by the Hollywood director John Houston, and it's an amazing story, and it, it's usually told as a kind of afterthought, or a sort of very brief kind of page or two before you get to Casino but it was brutal and awful and completely sets up the rest of the Italian campaign I've been having a fascinating time doing that anyway that, that's called The Savage Storm and that's out this autumn, and then yeah, I'm back on fiction at the moment. And then, yeah, on my own podcast, We Have Ways to Make You Talk, we've got the, the We Have Ways Fest, which is a spin-off, which is coming up in September. And plans for the kind of newly rebranded, what was the Chalk Valley History Festival is now just simply Chalk with no title sponsor, which is liberating in many ways. And yeah, so there's a lot, an awful lot going on. Usual kind of amount of spinning plates. But how about you? So what are you, where are you heading to in the States? Actually, I've got a new job at Cornell. So I'm heading over to there and just finished the, the book on precision warfare and all that precision bombing during the Second World War and the legacies of that. And that's out in December. But yeah, all exciting stuff. But today, we've got to focus and concentrate on the 80th anniversary of the Battle of Kursk. And I'm sure we may well actually touch a little bit on what happens in Italy around this time and how maybe it impacts the battle in some ways. But it did, it ended on August 23rd, 1943. And I was thinking to start us off, maybe you could take us back to the period around the start of the battle, James, because am I right in thinking this takes place after the Battle of, of Stalingrad and after that defeat, Hitler must have been reeling and just desperate for a decisive victory. Yeah, so it's a really interesting period. And it's one of those periods between the beginning of February to beginning of July, which I think is, is again, it's a, it's a bit like my Italy in 1943. It drops off the radar, really, in, in the narrative. In the narrative arc, it's... Barbarossa in 1941, and then it's the kind of Operation Blue and the drive to the Caucasus, and then it's the big turning point with Stalingrad, then it's Kursk. But actually, it's this bit in the middle, which is the Red Army pushing pushing from the, the North Caucasus strategic offensive operation, codenamed Don, just pushing the Germans back. Then the sort of counterattacks by the Germans. The city of Rostov, which has recently been in the news because of the Wagner Group kind of cap capturing it in their kind of very brief attempted coup, which is in that kind of just north of the northeastern corner of Ukraine, in southern Russia, really. That changes hand about three times. But 
there's also Red Army operations going on in the north, north of that area, which is where you get this bulge that emerges with Kursk sort of pretty much at the middle. And it's about 500 kilometres all the way round. It's about kind of 200 kilometres north to south and 200 kilometres deep, something like that, east to west. And it's basically like a big square. And north of that, you've got Orel, which is a key town, a confluence of rivers and roads and, and railways. But at the centre of this, uh, and that's north of the bulge, but this huge great bulge which sticks out in the line has Kursk at the middle. And the Germans are determined to squash this. What they think is, what we'll do is we'll do a giant encirclement, we'll encircle all, all the Red Army troops in there. We need more workers, slave workers, so that we need about a million. So that kills that particular bird with one of the stones and at the same time we can reduce our own front by about 300 kilometers by reducing the bulge which obviously means if you've got 300 less kilometers to deal with that's 300 kilometers less that needs looking after but by this point the germans are absolutely if they weren't already they are entering the realms of fantasy because it makes no strategic sense whatsoever to do this. And, and what they've forgotten is that you can trade space for time, that the territory isn't necessarily important. And they are now, by this point, completely delusional if they think that they are going to be able to counterattack and actually win a decisive victory in the Soviet Union. That moment has absolutely passed with the encirclement of Sikh Army. And the reason that's so important, it's not just that they've lost an entire army. That's part of it. It's more that they've lost the initiative. They're on the back foot. And their own supply lines, compared to the supplies of the Soviet Union, are diminishing very fast. And they've got another major offensive to deal with in the West, and particularly in the Southwest, in the Mediterranean which is of enormous importance to Hitler because the Mediterranean front is basically safeguarding the only source of real oil that the Nazi Germany has, which is at Ploesti in Romania. And that accounts for about 30% of German fuel supplies. The rest of it is done by, by creating synthetic fuel. And that process is done by using coal, which is incredibly expensive. It's incredibly time-consuming. It's incredibly bad and inefficient use of your coal supplies and comes with all sorts of spin-off losses and hassle and pain in the backsideness. So for all sorts of reasons, they don't want to lose prestige. So the Mediterranean front has a, a, a level of importance which is sometimes, I think, by historians underestimated because it's always thought that there's all the kind of the Churchill quote about the soft underbelly and all the rest of it, and it's supposed to be the easy option and all the rest of it. But actually, it's of enormous strategic importance to, to Hitler, a very difficult place for, for which to, to fight from the Allied point of view. And that's their priority. And they just they simply don't have the capacity to do everything. And the scale involved of reducing the salient, this huge bulge, is enormous and it gets harder and harder with every passing week. Now, had they tried to cut this off in April 1943, possibly that might have been the time to do it. But the problem is they don't have the strength to do that. They need the rebuild. They need the pause to rebuild their own strength. But in that pause... The Red Army are also building up their strength and reorganising themselves. And they're becoming a much more kind of professional, much more organised army. There's a kind of new professionalism which is emerging into the Red Army. And also, on top of that, they've now got the best guys on the job in terms of the Red Army. They've got Rokosovsky and people like that. And Rokosovsky, who was actually a sort of an ex-Polish count who has survived the purges of the 1930s, is, is really good. And... What they're doing is, and you've got Vatutin, of course, uh, who is also another top draw guy. So 
there are two entire fronts, which are what we would call an army group. So this is a, a front is a group of armies. So there's two whole lots of Soviet army groups covering the, the Kursk salient, this huge, massive square bulge. And they are preparing massive, really monstrous defences, which run to eight separate defensive lines. There are three major lines in the outer shell. Then there's a further three inner lines. Then there is a seventh line, which is just behind Kursk. And then there is a further backdrop eighth line. And really, the chances of the Germans even getting through kind of, you know, the first three bands is pretty small. And a much more sensible opportunity at this stage of the war, when you consider the huge commitments that they've got, would surely be to move back behind the Dnieper in Ukraine and the other rivers in what we would now call Belarus and hold their line there. The advantages are they've got a massive great river, which is a huge defensive line in its own right, and they've got much shorter lines of communication. But they don't do that. But the key thing here, James, um, if they were to do that, and they would try and, and regroup. Where would they be getting their troops from? Because am I right in thinking that by this point, Germany's lost around 2 million men and they're starting to recruit up veterans from the First World War, anyone up to the age of 50, and also those from the Hitler Youth. Like you say, you've got the Soviet Union that's got the best of the best coming in. But for Germany, it's starting to really fall short on all the key things it needs to win any battle, let alone one of the largest battles in history. Yeah, absolutely. Some really important work has been done on this. A few years ago, it was done by Benny Shepard. He's very sadly, he's a brilliant historian, sadly no longer with us. But he had a forensic look at the makeup of the German army as it progresses through the Second World War. And when we're thinking, for most people, when you're thinking about German army in the Second World War, what you're thinking about really is the Blitzkrieg years. This is 1939, particularly 1940, first part of 1941 before Barbarossa. So we're talking about Poland to a certain extent, but really Norway, France, Low Countries, Balkans, Greece. That's your prime bit of German battle effectiveness and efficiency. And as we know, even by then, something like you move through to Crete and it's starting to get pretty tiresome. The loss is there as well. Yeah, it's starting to creak a Crete. Yeah, absolutely. But in the German army at that point, and at the kind of junior rank, you've got old school Prussian professional pre-war army, which knows what it's about, is highly motivated, it's got lots of young men, all that goes out with the dishwater in Operation Barbarossa, where the way the Germans work is they're completely disposed to fighting short, sharp, very decisive battles. You enact a kettleschlag, which is a kind of cauldron war, so you encircle your enemy, destroy them, move on to the next one, and you do it all very quickly. And the reason you want to do it very quickly is because Germany, Prussia as it was before 1871, is in the heart of Europe and it's resource poor, doesn't have world access to the world's oceans, all this kind of stuff. So you need to win decisively very quickly and overwhelm your enemy. And the problem is that, is that when that doesn't happen, when Britain doesn't get out of the war in 1940, they've got a massive headache on their hand because they're running out of stuff quite quickly. They need the kind of the resources that the Soviet Union has to offer, the Lebensraum, and that's how they've got to go in. But the nature of the way they organise themselves is that you have a very sharp spear, but you have a long shaft. And the long shaft is very much kind of second and third and fourth rate troops compared to your spearhead. But the problem with using the spearhead, which are the best troops, the youngest guys, the kind of best trained, best motivated, all the rest of it, the kind of, in your, in your mind's eye, the Nazi war machine. These are the guys in the half tracks and armoured cars and panzers and motorbikes with sidecars and all the rest of it. Everyone else is on sort of their own two feet or using horse and cart. 
there is only so much they are getting attrited all the time at the same time even though they're winning so they're in Barbarossa they're kind of sort of winning themselves to death and what you get is a situation by 1943 where there are still some hardcore guys from the, the from those early years in place but they're starting to get very thin on the ground and replacing them are not highly motivated soldiers of the Prussian tradition they are highly motivated Nazis and that's not the same thing so they're very disciplined very ideologically driven very fanatical which means you're going to have quite a lot of staying power but it doesn't mean you're highly trained and it means your propensity to go along with delusional plans is very high and so that's what's happening by 1943. And that is what is happening in the run-up to Kursk. Take us into that run-up to Kursk, because you say it should have started in April. I know it's meant to have started... No, in... I, I, don't think it should have start, I don't think it should have started at all. But if they're going to do it, their slight window is in April before the Red Army has built these incredible defences at Kursk. But I still don't think they would have had a hope in hell of winning. And, and, what, and what are they trying to win? Anyway, it's ground in the middle of central Russia. It's it's just bonkers. But, but this is it. Is this a broadly more kind of a PR thing for the Axis powers? Is this Hitler trying to show that he still has this formidable force and the tactics still work? Like you say, strategically, it makes little sense. And then the tactics that you've been talking about in terms of encircling, that hasn't worked before and it's probably unlikely to work again. So is this more about a, a broader political decision and the delusions of Hitler? Yeah, it's completely about that. It's about the delusions of Hitler and it's about trying to wreak a huge, grotesque loss of face from the loss of Stalingrad. The frame back, these were the almighty Nazis and no one stops. And then suddenly they have been stopped. And then they're stopped again in Tunisia. And then the U-boats are defeated. And suddenly Sicily's invaded and it looks like Italy's about to be out of the war as well. And et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a dams raid and there's an all-out strategic air campaign against, against the Ruhr in March, April, May 1940, and suddenly Germany's being pummeled and the once mighty, unstoppable Nazi Moloch has been not only blunted, but actually sent back with its tail between its legs. And for Hitler, this is, you can't put up with that. And you've got allies in Romania and Bulgaria and Hungary who have also taken a massive dent along the way, and Italy, of course, and you need to restore their confidence. And this is about reclaiming the central stage and about showing that, no, of course Nazis going to, Germany's going to win. We're going to have a, a famous victory, which is going to turn the tables and everyone will go, oh, actually, the Germans are to busted flush after all. But it's, it's completely delusional because they haven't got a hope in hell of winning. They just, there is not a chance that they're going to do that. And, and because it's an ideological war in the Eastern Front, all those people that could have worked with them in Ukraine, who were welcoming the Germans to Michelin, have been turned against them. There's now vast partisan armies, the remnants of these armies that were encircled in 1941, who are operating behind the lines with full cooperation to Stavka, the Soviet high command, and wreaking absolute havoc on communication lines of communications which are really still incredibly overextended it is a very long way from berlin to this point everything is working against them hello host of dan snow's history at podcast here history isn't just dates and facts it's about the incredible stories that shape our world Three times a week on my podcast, my expert guests and I bring you extraordinary stories of heroism, discovery, mystery. 
and power. Expect tales of lost tombs, daring escapes, power-hungry rulers, and those determined to bring them all down. If you're a history lover or just looking for a good tale, you want to check out Dan Snow's History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Take us into how this battle plays out, this grand failure, because it was meant to start in the May. It goes on and on. Delays take place. It starts finally in the July. But how does it start? The idea is to pinch off the kind of the root of the. So if you think of it as a big square and the, the two, the rest of the front extends north and south of the right hand side of the square as you're looking at it. What they're doing is they're trying to pinch off that line at the root of the bulge. An attack from the north, an attack from the from the south, and these are going to be coordinated and they're going to meet in the middle, have this huge giant encirclement, capture a million men, etc., take them all back to Germany as slave labourers, and the, the line will be shortened and they will have re-won the, the initiative. But within a week, the, the northern thrust has, has barely gone 12 kilometres. So that was like seven miles. And it's, they're trying to compete. It's still a pretty big tank battle. No, I mean, they've got a sort of 120 to go. So they're not got very far. And they've barely penetrated the second, beyond the second line of defence. So it's absolutely stopped in its tracks. And the whole point about the German USP is that they're highly manoeuvrable force, that they, they operate with extreme pace and speed. And a long, slow, attritional slugging match is not their piece when they're on the attack. So already it's pretty clear that this is going absolutely nowhere. You then have the famous or infamous Battle of Prokhorovka down in the south, which is the, the so-called greatest tank battle of all time, which has been, that whole thing has been completely dismantled by recent historians. But even it involves a lot of armoured fighting vehicles. The numbers of German ones which are destroyed is not very high, but that's neither here nor there because the bottom line is they're not making any progress and they don't and they continue to not make any progress and then at a certain point hitler calls the whole thing off and the reason he calls the whole thing off is because there is this battle going on in sicily and he's always said the allies invade in the mediterranean that has to take the priority and it's interesting because a lot of people always say that you know the, the greatest battleground on on the second world war was on the eastern front or certainly the war against nazi germany and Yes, in terms of manpower and boots on the ground, but you have to be very careful, I think, of, of according strategic importance to boots, numbers of men involved, because the two don't necessarily flow. Sometimes they can, but sometimes they don't. And it depends on what scope you're looking at it. And what you have to realise is that the bigger the space, the more men there are involved. The smaller the space, the fewer the men involved. There is logistically only so many men that you can fit into Sicily, for example, but it's almost infinitesimal along the whole stretch of the Eastern Front. But interestingly, between June and October 1943, something like 702 German aircraft are lost on the Eastern Front, but 3,400 are lost in the Mediterranean. In terms of air power, it's absolutely the Southern Front. In terms of strategic importance to Hitler, it's absolutely the Southern Front. In terms of men involved, it's absolutely the Eastern Front, but... Citadel, Operation Citadel, the German offensive, is called off after a week because it is getting absolutely nowhere and there's bigger fish to fry and deal with in the, in the southern Mediterranean. But Hitler always says that if the Allies land in the Mediterranean, I'm going to call it off. 
But the Allies were always going to land in the Mediterranean. And why did you start it in the first place in that case? Did Hitler really think they were going to have a rapid victory before the Allies landed in the Mediterranean? That's just absurd. So this is all part of his sort of grand delusions, really. Was there any relationship between the timing of Operation Husky, Eisenhower's sitting there in his command post on Malta? Is there any sort of correlation between the time decided, that point decided for Husky, and Kursk starting? Is this something that is a, a kind of grander strategic plan to try and make sure that as, as many German troops are detained over there on the Eastern Front and, and killed, and then it makes it much easier for the Allies in Italy? No, because Operation Husky, the dates are agreed at the very end of April and signed off at the beginning of May 1943. That's done. And they're not privy to what the German plans are. But obviously the, the Germans know as they're planning, they know that the Allies are, they've just done this huge operation in Tunisia. They know that they're going to be launching somewhere. This is all part of Operation Mincemeat and all this kind of nonsense. When Hitler thinking they're going to land in Sardinia or Greece. Of course, they're only ever going to land in Sicily because the limits of fighter air cover, which is so important to an amphibious operation, preclude you going anywhere else, really. You could just about do Sardinia, but why would you just about do Sardinia when you can easily do Sicily? It makes no sense whatsoever. And Greece is a completely non-starter. But such is, is Hitler's delusion that he thinks it's possible. No, the two are only connected in Hitler's mind and in German planning rather than in grand, wider Allied strategy. If you're doing. So how does this come to an end? How does the Battle of Kursk come to an end? Do we start to see a kind of a quick turning around of the panzers who are then rushing towards Italy, scarpering as far as possible. Is this, I suppose, the sowing the seeds of the, the final stages of the war of German defeat? Yes. So what you have is you have the launch of the rail war by the partisans, which is it, which actually doesn't really start until after Kursk has been called to a halt on the 12th of July. And that's really the sort of second half of July into the beginning of August that you have the rail war, where the partisans are just, I think it's, there's 1,400 separate individual attacks on German rail routes by partisans in July. And that increases in August. And you've got around best part of 100,000 partisans cutting rail network 200,000, 300,000 times, something like that. So just unbelievable levels. And of course, that that's absolutely just cutting the, the German supply lines totally. And at the same time, what you... Is that aided by SOE and British intelligence at the same time? Because I know British intelligence played a quite pivotal role during this period. Only by Soviet British Soviet spies. This is the, the Cambridge ring and all the rest of it, feeding information and all the rest of it. But no. But also there's Operation Lucy going on in, in Switzerland, which is a dissident German who's passing on information as well. So there's that. But yes, there's Operation Kutusov and Operation Rumyantsev, which are the two operations to burst out of the Kerr salient. So first of all, you've got the, the Germans trying to pinch it out. And then what you've got is on Rokossovsky's front, on the Central Front and the Voronya Front, which is Tutin, you've got a kind of, if you imagine a sort of a shell bursting like that's how they're doing. So this for Tutin's effort is spreading out from the kind of to the south west and, and Rokossovsky's is spreading out to the north west. And you know, by the 22nd of August, Germans are bugging out of Kharkov yet again, and it's taken, and Orel is taken. And it's just good night, Charlie, for the Germans in Soviet Union. It's never going to happen. But what the Red Army have developed by this stage is what they call the deep battle. This idea that you have this huge, great battering ram and you swing it back and then you just go 
let it go and just go wham and everything goes forward all the troops all the echelons you all just go forward in one mighty surge but of course that's incredibly violent involves vast amounts of casualties and even they run out of steam so what you typically find is these operations last for about six weeks tops um, something like that maybe two months at a push and then they all have to pause and rebuild strength again give us an understanding of the scale of that james and in general the scale of cost to human life and just how many troops are involved in this battle yeah around four million troops about sixty-nine thousand artillery and launchers about thirteen thousand tanks twelve thousand aircraft the Red Army loses 6,064 tanks at that time and still wins comfortably, absolutely slaughters them. So their way of fighting is incredibly inefficient in terms of material, but it's incredibly efficient in terms of smashing the, the, the Germans. But in the Western Allies, every life is precious and we're avoiding we're democracies. We're not going to be shooting people if they don't do what they're told. So morale is incredibly important. And... For the most part, the Allies are not fighting on their own soil. So it's a different kettle of fish in the Soviet Union where individual life has no value whatsoever. And they've got millions of... They've got 14 million people in in uniform, so you can afford to lose a whole load. The deep battle is, is very costly because everyone's involved. But just like any other, any other battle, you talk about 4 million men involved, it's not four million men directly in the firing line, it's probably half to a third of that because you need people with wagons and horses and echelons and supply lines and all that kind of stuff. But it's still a staggering amount of of manpower. There's no question. And, in, and women power in terms of the Soviet Union as well, of course. James, thank you so much for taking us through this battle and just how pivotal it was. There's so many times that we say, oh, this was a turning point of the Second World War. And perhaps more accurately, that would be Stalingrad. But you can start to see how German forces are on a, on a sliding scale towards defeat here. And then, of course, if anyone wants to find out what happens next, then they need to read your new book on the Italy campaign. Tell us again, <laughs> what is the title of the book and where can we find it? It's called The Savage Storm, The Battle for Italy, 1943. And it's out in the UK on the 28th of September and in the US, I think, at the very beginning of December. I can't wait to read it. My, my granddad served there, as uh, our listeners know all too well. And uh, James, it's always great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much. No, thanks, James. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.